Well, good morning. Everybody, everybody here feeling pretty good today? Now, you're looking good. You're looking good. Now, you're supposed to say, well, you too, Pastor. You're looking good too. But no, it's too late now. It's too late. We're going to be looking at, uh, I think, the sixth installment of our series of messages on, on overcoming spiritual vertigo. And it, you've been studying that in your small groups based on the book. And so we're mo- looking at moving forward in uncertain times. Do you feel like sometimes you really need to know 100% positive what you need to do before you do it? Do you feel like you, you feel like, well, you know, all my life, Pastor, I have learned and I've been taught that you can discover God's will for your life. You take these seven steps, five steps, three steps, depending on what pastor you're listening to, you can take these steps and you can find out God's will for your life and you can find out 100% before you make a move. And then you pray about it and you take those seven steps, whatever they are, and you come to a point where it didn't come out like you wanted it to. It just did not work out like you thought. Therefore, spiritual vertigo. God, I know what you teach in your Bible, and I know what pastors are teaching about knowing God's will because God wants you to know his will more than you want to know it. How many of you ever heard that one? Sure. And so, therefore, it didn't come out. So how in the world can I really trust you with the rest of my life? And that reasoning kind of goes that way. And listen, it puts a lot of pressure on a guy. For example, a pastor. He has to know... What, I mean, I'm affecting hundreds of people's lives, millions of dollars. I've got to have some wisdom about me. Bible says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives all men liberally and upraise not, it shall be given him. What about that? What about us having the mind of Christ and all the, you know, pastor, if you were a man of God, you would always be right. Dads, if you really wanted the respect of your wife, your children, Well, you need to know what God's will is. If you're a man of God, then you should know what the will of God is. And and what about in your business life? Some of you men, ladies, you go to work, they know you're a Christian, and you make a a decision that's not quite right, and they look at you and they think to themselves, well, you should have known that. I mean, don't you follow God? Tremendous amount of pressure that's placed upon our life because we feel right about a decision then it doesn't go right. So how do you deal with that issue? Well, we have a story in the Bible that deals with that issue. In Daniel chapter 3, very familiar passage to many about Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. And in this story, we find it situated in the 6th century B.C. in Babylon. Now, Babylon is modern-day Iraq. And so if you can just get the picture of what's going on here in the 6th century... They are taking over every country around them. Now, in taking over every country around them, they are becoming a very pluralistic society in which they have a lot of different religions, a lot of different beliefs, because you're bringing this person in, this person in. And really what Babylon really believed is that when you conquer a nation, you leave them there. Unlike the Assyrians who conquered Israel, the nation of Israel just 150 years before this, Judah, the nation of Judah, the other kingdom of of Israel, was living such a life that God said, you know, I've had enough, and he had the Babylonians come in and take them over. Well, the Babylonians believed in keeping people centrally located 
in their homeland, believing that they could get more use out of them. But they took the brightest and the best, they took them out, and they brought them into uh, Babylon, and so they could become part of the culture. And they could become part, uh, they could assimilate into the culture and become, even intermarry, and become part of their culture. Therefore, bringing out the brightest and the best. Well, the four men that we look at in the book of Daniel, Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, were all part of that. They were among the four. So keep in mind, as we're looking at this passage, that these men were educated in Babylon. Just like we're educated in our school system, they were educated in Babylon. They had a part in the government, and so they were assimilated into everything that was going on in Babylon at the time. And so as we look at this, the message is, is very clear here, I think. Well, well, I guess that remains to be seen. It's clear to me, all right? It's clear to me. Because we go through uncertain times, we need certain things to be clear before we have the faith and the courage to move forward. So we're talking about something uncertain, but we're talking about things that are clear. First of all, I want us to look at the pressures that we all face. Same kind of pressures they were facing back then. In verses 12, just give you a little bit more, verse 12 through 16, just to give you a little bit more pickup here of what's going on. Nebuchadnezzar came to the point where he said, you know, look, I've got all these religions and everybody's worshiping their own God. Well, that divides people, so, so it, people think. So that divides people. So what we need is a religion to bring everybody together. So he built a 90-foot statue. Some people will say, well, that's a statue of Nebuchadnezzar because he wants everybody to uh, worship him. And in his pride, uh, you know, it makes sense. But it, it doesn't, we, we never find a name for the statue. And so really what this statue represents is the culture of Babylon. It represents the pluralistic society. And what they were saying was this. Look, you can worship any God you want to in the privacy of your own home. Go back to your condo and, and worship and pray all you want. But when you come out in the public square, you got a 90-foot statue. And anytime you hear the music play, you've got to bow down and worship that statue. Now, what that did was bring, the, at least Nebuchadnezzar and his, his team believe, that brought everybody together. Instead of everybody being divided over religion and their own culture, because their own culture really did have something to do with, with their faith usually, instead of doing all that, they keep that private. They don't bring it into the marketplace. They don't ever talk about it. They just simply come now and worship this one statue so we can bring everybody together. Well, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego did not do that. When the music played, they just stood up and everybody else was bowing down and worshiping the statue. And so... Some of the people that didn't like these three guys because they were so favored by the king said, King, didn't you say this? He said, yeah, I said that. He said, well, there's somebody guilty of not doing that. Well, who is that? Well, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. He said, bring them to me. And he was really upset about the whole thing. Not only, keep in mind, that he's upset because it's going to interfere with what he's trying to do in the country, but also it's a personal insult to him as well. So we begin to read in verse 12 where it says, he appointed uh, there certain Jews whom he have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image and you have set up for them. Then Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage 
commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true that you've done this? This golden, wouldn't worship the golden image. Verse 15. Now are you ready when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, fire, trigon, um, harp, bagpipe, and all these other musical instruments to fall down and worship the image that you have made? Well, but if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of our hands? He says, look, I'm going to give you one more shot. Why, would I, why am I going to do that? Because I like you. I like you. Deep down, I'm furious, but I like you. And you're favored in the kingdom along with Daniel. And so I'm going to give you one more shot. Now, when you hear the music, I want you to bow down. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. For if this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Great declaration of faith, no, no question about it. But he's looking at this. Notice the pressure that they're under. They are in a pluralistic society, and they're trying to bring everybody together under the same tent. And to do that, you, you stamp out the religion. Now, we can talk about, and it's true, that communism uh, certainly says there is no God. And, you know, Marx said, Marx, uh, Karl Marx said that's the opiate of the people. And so what you can't have in a government like that is worshiping anything. You have to worship the government. Otherwise, you do not have unity. And when you are assigning people work and paying them all the same thing, you have to have some sort of unity, even if it's forced. Socialism, not as forced, but it's kind of the same thing. The state gives, the state get, takes away. Blessed be the name of the state. And so what we want to, you to do is keep your religion private. And we already, without socialism, we already have that today in our society. You know that. You know where you work. Many places they say, don't bring religion. You can't bring your Bible to school, or you can't bring the gospel to school, or you can't bring your, uh, your religion into um, what's going on in our business, in our corporate world. You can't do that. Why? Well, if you do that, it's going to make somebody upset. It's going to make somebody mad, especially if it's the gospel. And so we live in this pluralistic society where we are <clears throat> told that your religion just needs to stay private. And you know, nowhere in the Bible does it teach that. Nowhere. In fact, the Bible talks about our faith as being very public because we believe that Jesus makes the difference between heaven and hell, and people need to know about the great hope that is in Jesus Christ. And then we look, however, at our society as a whole, and people reject that. You can't, you can't do that. And why is that? Well, we live in this kind of society where, you know, okay, your religion is supposed to be personal, but it doesn't mean that's not the same thing as private. So it's supposed to be private, and you're supposed to worship or bow down to whatever that society says is going to unify you. And so as we look, we ask ourselves a question. Are we part of that? Are we part of the solution? Well, if you, for example, look at your, in your business world as being ruthless, as being um, undermining of 
spiritual things. You have to do things to get ahead. And not only is it ruthless, but it's backbiting and certainly barely legal. Well, if your business is like that, you're living in the corporate world and it's like that and you're part of that because you say, I just got to go along to get along. I have to pay the bills. You're part and participating in the pluralistic society. If, for example, and this is a survey happened a few years ago, a survey was given among 18 to 23-year-olds all across America about premarital sex. And it found out that of those people who were not raised in church, did not believe that there was anything morally wrong with premarital sex, 23% of them were still virgins. But those who were raised in church that still believe the Bible, that said they believed premarital sex was, was taught in the Bible that it was wrong, and therefore they, they shouldn't do it, 28% of them were virgins. Very little difference. George Barna the surveyor of America, you might say, and especially the church, would say that there is, he, founds, he finds very little difference between the morals and the way of life of Christians and non-Christians. Now, he says that among the whole church, not just the evangelical or the gospel-preaching churches. But nevertheless, you, you get what we're saying. We are pressured. There's a pressure on us to conform. Why is that? Well, we, we basically live in a world where, where the pressure is real, the pressure to perform, the, and the pressure to conform. And sometimes the pressure, if I can rhyme a little bit, to reform. All of them are true. Somebody says, well, the, man, you know, the last thing I want to do is walk into a boardroom and people look at me and say, well, you know, I'm dismissing you, canceling you out. Why? Well, you're just not an intellectual. Not only that, but you, you don't know what you're talking about because you're not successful. So why should we listen to you? You, you know, a young person doesn't want to go into a high school and not conform, and therefore they're dismissed, kind of canceled out, almost like nobody sees you. Everyone wants to be popular in school. Everyone wants to be successful out in life. And therefore, we come to a point of doing things that we know, we know please those around us, knowing that they displease the Lord. There's pressure all around us. And these fears that we have, fear of failure, fear of being rejected as we try to conform, all come out of what we worship or who we worship. It's just like one pastor was going to a city to pastor a church. In fact, he was going to plant the church. And this city, if I mentioned it, you know, there's so many cities that are dangerous and some of you are from those cities. I don't you know, really, you know, if you disagree with me about the danger of that city, uh, you know, you just have to read the newspaper. But anyway, um, it's a very dangerous city. It's several years ago, probably about 30 years ago, he planted this church. And he and his wife were riding through the, the uh, downtown area, which took hours to get through, and just getting a lay of the land because he was going to plant a church in the inner city of the church. Became very successful, by the way. But when he was doing it, he, the only thought he had, he said, and he was just confessing. He said, I had this thought, wow, I'm young. If I, if I blow it here, I'm going to blow it for the rest of my life. Nobody's going to give me another chance. Nobody's going to respect me. And he was, he was fearful of failure. On the other hand, his wife did not have those thoughts at all. He said his wife's thoughts were, were this. 
How am I going to raise our three kids in this city? It depends on who's on the throne. If you want to know what, who your God is, chase the fear, follow the fears, and you'll find it. And so we're going through all this, and we're thinking to ourselves, look, I'm praying for God's will for my life, and you, you know, when I prayed for it before, I was successful. Then I prayed again, and I, I made the wrong decision. I don't know if I can trust him again. I don't know if he's got my best interests at heart. But let me remind you, dear friends, that your salvation experience should be enough. My salvation experience should be enough to confirm how much God cares about my present as well as my future. In fact, to the extent that you, if, if, you, if you and I get so caught up in success and failure, or so caught up in our children, or so caught up with other things in our life, money or prestige or uh, popularity, if we get involved in all those things, it's probably because we don't see our salvation as being a miracle, as one writer put it. We don't see our salvation is being something supernatural. Now, I've shared with you before that sometimes we feel the way we do as a church because we, we don't believe in the gospel anymore. We believe in the tenets of the gospel, but we don't really believe it really works. So I ask you, do you look at your salvation as a miracle? I mean, really, search your heart this morning. You say, well, let, let, me, let me think to myself. I was um, saved when I was eight. I wasn't, 16, but... I'm just saying you. You know what I'm saying? You get me? All right, all right. So you say, well, you know, I, I learned the Bible stories. In fact, I learned this story. I learned this story in the Bible. And uh, when I was six years old and seven years old, my parents, you know, led me to the Lord. And, you know, I just grew up in church and I learned to read the Bible every day and learned to pray every day. And I went to youth group and I went to camp and I went to vacation Bible school, you know, before that. And I did all these things and I graduated from high school. And I think, oh, yeah, 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 you know, my faith is real. But then you go off and you, you live like it's not. Why? Because you see your salvation as a human process. I was educated. I had a good example with my parents. And I, I'm, I'm advantaged in the way, in a way, my dad was not a believer. He became a believer after I became a believer. I was saved when I was 16 years old, and I was saved out of something. I, there was a change in my life. Sometimes it's difficult to see a change in your life when you're eight years old. It's difficult. How much can you change when you're eight? So you look at your life and say, you know, I just don't see it as really being a miracle. Therefore, you go through a process in your mind. Well, I'm going to pray about this, and I'm going to look in the Bible. I'm going to you know, what the counsel of other people. I'm going to pray about it. I'm going to fast about it, read the Bible, get a verse. I want a verse. I want a verse to tell me what to do. I used to believe that. And so you got a verse, and you, you go through all the processes, but deep down in your heart, you think, how in the world can I trust God? Because it's not 100% that he's going to, Tell me what to do. I'm going to do the right thing. Get all of my, my, my own thoughts and my wrong motives out of the decision. I can't guarantee that, so how can I trust him? But here's what the Bible says. What then shall we say to these things, says Paul? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? 
You and I were saved out of sin. It was a miraculous thing. Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. So how will he not now freely give us all things? You say, but yeah, but you've already said things are uncertain. So let's look at those uncertain things. In verse 17, it says, If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us out of a burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, do those words bother you as much as they used to bother me? But even if, as the Mercy Me wrote a song, the singing group wrote a song based on this verse, even, even if, and it literally means, but if it doesn't happen the way I think it's going to happen. I hope it's going to happen. He says this, Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you set up for us. Again, maybe the greatest declaration of faith I've ever heard. God is well able to do this, Nebuchadnezzar. He's able to rescue us out of the fiery furnace. And they say being burned, burned alive is one of the most painful ways that you can go. But he said, if he does not, even so, we're still going to worship just God. Publicly and privately, worship the Lord, even if. What was he saying? What, what would happen? What's happening in our life here? What's happening in their life? This great def- declaration of faith. He, they were saying, look, we love God just for who he is. Not that he's going to rescue not that he's going to do this or that, that for us. And we see all kinds of things in life where we think, I've prayed, I've prayed, I've prayed. I've shared with you this before about my friend who prayed that their pre- the president of their college who was a believer in Christ died. And even up to the time they buried him, they advertised and talked about all throughout campus, no, we prayed that he's going to rise from the dead and there's going to be revival in our college. They didn't rise from the dead. And you say, well, that's ridiculous. Well, I don't know. I mean, it seems like to me, being rescued out of a fiery furnace that we're going to find out seven times hotter than a normal fire is a pretty big miracle. And other people saying, well, I just, I just don't know. I don't know if I can really trust myself with the mind of God. Here's the problem. 1 Corinthians tells us that we do have the opportunity to have the mind of Christ, but we don't always have it. We don't always know it. We don't always know his mind. And so with that, we have to trust in something. Something combats that. And what is it? It's his heart. I may not know the mind of God, but I know the heart of God. And therefore, certain things are clear to them And clear to me and should be clear to all of us here today. There's a clarity of it all. And that is that God truly does love us. Look in verse, uh, in the following verses. Look in verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. All of a sudden, his countenance just changed. He was hopeful. Oh, just do this. Come on, just, I'm going to give you one more chance. Just go ahead. No You know, we respect you. There's nothing on you. But we're not going to do this. And he was infuriated. 
And he said he ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it usually was heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments that were thrown in the, in the burning, fiery furnace because the king, king's order was so urgent and the furnace overloaded. The flame of the fire killed these men who took them up. So the guards that threw them in were burned up. I mean, the fire just jumped out and got them. And these three men, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, was astonished, and he rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did you not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, oh, true, true, O king. And he answered and said, but I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. And only God could reveal that to him as far as who he was. We look at this and we see some clear things. What do we know? What is clear to us? We are clear about the presence of God in our life. That should be clear to every single believer. The Bible says the very moment that you and I receive Jesus into our heart, the spirit of Christ comes and lives inside of our life. The presence of God is always with us. Now, we don't always feel the presence. Sometimes we're just too busy to take notice of his presence. Sometimes there's sin in our life. Too much, so, so, so much so that we just, we don't repent and we don't sense his presence in our life. But Jesus is always the fourth man in the fiery furnace. He's always there with you. Through all the adversities of life, through being as Jesus was on the boat with the disciples. And he says, Lord, don't you care that we perish? He was on the boat with them. Know the present. That's clear. We don't know the future. We can't tell what God's leading us into or whether our motives are, are wrong and we just can't separate our motives from the decision. We don't know all that, but we know it's clear that he's present with us. Not only that, but it's clear that he loves us. But God shows his love toward us and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Listen to Jeremiah. And I want you to pick up how much God loves you and when he does. When he does, how much he does, and what he gives you because he loves you. Now the word of the Lord came to this prophet. He said to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Even before you were born, he knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I set you apart. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, ah, oh, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to him, do not say I am only a youth, for all to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. He's got a mission here. He's got a plan for his life. He loves him before he was even born. He formed him in the womb. That means that he gave them, him the, the talents that he would need to accomplish his purpose. He says, do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put on at, out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, behold, I put my words in your mouth. To every person that names the name of Christ, to every person that's received Jesus into their heart. That means many of you and me, those who are watching today, it means you. 
that he knew you so much and he loved you even before you were born and he gave you the talents that you need and he's given you a meaning and a purpose in life and a calling in life, then he gives you the extra resources and touches your mouth in order for you and I to accomplish what we need to accomplish. But it all comes down to one thing, doesn't it? The cross. Do you believe it? Is it a miracle? Have you received that miracle? Because as one writer put it, you will feel Jesus walking with you in the fire to extent to the extent that you believe Jesus walked in the fire on the cross for you. He walked through the ultimate fire as he died on the cross for us in order to give us that life. And he's more than able to give us all things. We need a clarity of truth. I just need to know the truth. I don't, I don't need to know the, the, the different things here, or the, the, you know, what rabbi so-and-so, doctor so-and-so. So I need to know the truth. And the truth is found in the Bible. 99% has been said, 99% of God's will is found right here in the Bible. In a general sense, that's true. And how can we say to God, God, I want to know your will for my life, your specific meaning like you did for Jeremiah. I need to know that. But how, why, why should God tell me that if I'm not obeying what he already told me? This is the truth. And lastly, we need a clarity of the future. We do. Because we think sometimes this life is all that matters. We're so, we're so brought into it. We're so drawn into it. My success today, my conformity today, my, my friends today, but God talks about something greater. In the book of Hebrews, when it talks about faith and the hall of faith and all the list of the Old Testament saints that were great in faith, one thing comes true more and more and more. They were looking for a better city. They knew that there was an afterlife. And they knew that this is not heaven. It's just not. And so you look and you say, well, how do I discover God's will? Well, when you are really close to being sure there may be some doubt there and that doubt is just there for God to show you that he is more than a formula. That he is more than just a thought in your head. You trust him with the other 5% because sometimes you just have to, sometimes you can wait. But if you've got to make a decision tomorrow, you just can't wait. And so we look at the future and here's what God says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to the great mercy, he has caused us to be born again, that's saved, becoming a Christian, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. One day, we're going to be coming before the Lord and we'll leave this world and our joy will be complete. The map that we had, we thought we had in life, will become a little more clear. But most of all, we'll be with Jesus Christ forever. But our inheritance is not just here. It's partly here. I mean, the joy, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, kindness, self-control. If you follow Jesus Christ, you're going to have those things. You're going to have those things. You're going to have a better life. But the afterlife is where the greatness 
and the overwhelming inheritance will come. This week, we had a few people healed in our church. That's right. And some of your relatives, some of you here, maybe I don't even know about it, you haven't shared with us, but one of your relatives was healed, ultimately healed this week because the ultimate healing comes when you die and leave this body and you're with Jesus Christ forever. That's where it is. And you say, well, I just, I just need to know all the answers. Just, I just need to know the answers to my question before I move forward as a believer. You know, it doesn't work that way. And let me share this with you. It, it didn't work that way when you were saved. You didn't have all the answers. You couldn't have. You have more answers now than you had then. In fact, when you receive Christ, lights begin to turn on in your head and your heart. But you didn't have all the answers. A good friend of my dad's, I, I knew him myself as growing up. They used to bowl together and they worked at Westinghouse together as well. And so I knew Billy pretty well. And my dad um, once had a goal of, of witnessing to everybody in Athens, Georgia. He didn't make that. He's still alive today, but he has memory difficulties. But um, didn't make that, but he witnessed to an awful lot of people. And Billy was one of them. But Billy always said, you know, my mom's a believer and you're a believer and I've got other friends that are believers, but I need to have all my questions answered first. And he just went on to say one day to my dad, I've got to have all the answers. Everything should line up for me. I've got to have all the answers and then I'll give my heart to the Lord. Well, he never made that decision that I know of because he never had all the answers. And you know you don't. So why do, why do I think, as a believer, even as a pastor, I have to have all the answers to move forward? I don't need all the answers. I just need clarity. I don't always know God's mind. I seek to know the mind of God. I do. But I don't always know everything exact, how things... I can't sometimes separate my own motives out on occasion. But I do know his heart. I do know his heart when I don't know his head. I know his heart. I know that he's present with me. He loves me. He's planned for my life. He has an afterlife for me. And he's given me a word in order to communicate with me his general will and the knowledge of him so I can know and have the wisdom of God. Now, maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking, you know, Pastor, I've got to make some decisions in my life or maybe that's the way I've been and things have not been certain for me, but they need to be clear. And you just need to say to God, God, thank you so much for clarity, even in the midst of doubting times. But this morning, if you've never come, you've never come to the place in your life you truly see your salvation as a miracle. You need to see that. That's foundational. So yeah, but I made this decision when I was younger and I got baptized. I'm not talking about all that. I mean, maybe you're saved, maybe you're not. I'm not going to judge that. But I'm saying this morning, you can begin to see your life and your salvation as a miracle of God by asking Jesus to come into your heart and just say, God, if you're, you've never come into my heart, come in today. Come in today. Do it today, God. Show me forgiveness. Show me your grace. 
Show me your love. With heads bowed and eyes closed, if that's your prayer today, I'm gonna pray a prayer with you. I prayed something like it many, many years ago. And I know that Jesus came into my life. And so if you'd like to pray this prayer with me, whether you're watching at home or you're watching here, you're here present, you can pray this prayer silently with me or out loud as I pray. I will invite you to do just that. Lord God, thank you for loving me. Thank you that you died for me on the cross. I open up my heart. And if I've never received Jesus before, I want to receive him now. Forgive me of my sins. Show me your glory. The glory of the cross and the resurrection. And I'll pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.